Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, hello. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction, the Monster Hunter edition. I'm honored to have with me today an author whose new book, Ring Shout, speaks to this very moment, even as it reaches back a century to a pivotal and dark episode in America, the resurgence of the KKK after World War I. The book draws on the history of slavery, Gullah, and African-American culture, and magic. And it's propelled by three fearless monster hunters who aren't afraid to look evil in the face and then chop the head that face is on right off. Fenderson Jelly Clark, or P. Jelly Clark, is also the author of the novella The Black God's Drums, which was a finalist for Hugo World Fantasy and Nebula Awards, and his story the Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington won Locus and Nebula Awards and was a finalist for Theodore Sturgeon Memorial and Hugo Awards. He is a founding member of FIA Literary Magazine. He is also a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Fenderson is on the line with me now. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rob. Welcome. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, let's dive right in. Your book is just out yesterday, so that'll be a couple weeks earlier from when the podcast actually comes out. But it's it's really fresh, and so I'm all set to to dive in and talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I think hopefully by the time you know this pod comes out, a lot of people will have gotten a chance to read it. So it'll mean a little more. I hope so. And if they haven't, they're going to go out and get it after they listen to this conversation. I'm sure. So the heroes of Ring Shout are three wonderful women, very cool, kick-ass women. There's Maurice Boudreau, the narrator, chef who served in World War I in the black regiment known as the Harlem Hellfighters, and Sadie, a sharpshooter who calls her Winchester rifle Winnie. Yes. <laughs> so since Maurice is the narrator, I thought we'd We'd focus on her, at least here at the start. Uh Can you tell our listeners about her and particularly her special sword? Yeah, Maurice is, you know, Maurice is a figure who, as you said, she's this fearless monster hunter. She's really driven to do this, this job that she's been called to. But she's also holding on to this trauma from her past that kind of put her on this path now. And so... There's this sense of her as, you know, the figure who is the avenging angel, but we know that they have their own demons that are tormenting them inside. And so, you know, that's that's Maurice in many ways. Very capable, but you can see there, there are these problems plaguing her. She wields a sword because I wanted to, this was a fantasy story and I wanted, them, I wanted the heroine to have a sword, even if it was in 1920s Macon, Georgia. The sword itself is a bit of a magical sword. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it is a sword that literally calls on the spirits of formerly enslaved people to do its magic. When the book opens, Maurice, Chef, 
and Sadie have baited a trap for the monsters. Yeah. Who or what are the monsters that they're waiting for? Yeah, the, the monsters in, in this flick, and there are supposed to be many monsters, but the key monsters are creatures called Ku Kluxes. <laughs> and I think everybody will uh, pretty much understand what, where I'm getting at here. But uh, the monsters are basically members of the clan who have been in many ways transformed into demonic creatures. Right. And I go into the book on why this happens and how how it happens and that, you know, it doesn't happen to everyone, but it happens to those who have given themselves over fully to the ideas of the clan and hate and what have you. And so those are the key monsters here. Those some other big baddies will show up as well. It's kind of a surprise in, in the beginning. So I guess I don't want to to give it away because, yeah. you know, you think of the KKK, anyone in it as a monster. And then here there are these characters who are truly physically embodied as completely monstrous. Yeah. And that idea, I think, really came to me from um, work as a historian. This was years ago. I was reading the narratives of ex-slaves uh, that were collected by the federal government, actually, during the Great Depression, the Federal Writers Project. And some of these ex-slaves talked about their encounter with the first Klan that arises, you know, during Reconstruction in the South. And it was interesting to see that the way that they describe this first Klan, when you read their passages, they often talk about them, not the way we would think, but sometimes wearing simply a pillowcase, sometimes having bells on them, sometimes having horns or with tails, Right. And they speak of them as haints, that is, ghosts and spirits. And so it wasn't it wasn't a big leap. Right. You find your inspiration. It wasn't a big leap for me to think of uh, basically take how they were describing the clan and attach it to this story in many ways. Yeah. So that was the origin of this idea of turning the clan uh, truly monstrous. Well, you touched on a lot of things that I wanted to ask you about. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the interviews that inspired you, the ones that were done mm -hmm. during the Depression by the writers working for the federal government. Yeah. And you frame each section of the book or you begin each section of the book with quotes yeah. that are translated from the Gullah that are ostensibly from these formerly enslaved individuals. And they are talking about something called the ring shout, right. after which the book is clearly named. So I thought you could explain what the ring shout tradition is yeah. and and also a little bit about the role that research played because you as a historian, the book seems to draw on a lot of different areas in which you have specialized. Right. Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. The, the ring shout tradition itself is a, is a uh, popular Southern tradition um, in the United States, African-American Southern tradition that often has to do with movement as well as music. It's often called a ring shout and has to do with its name. And that is the participants in a ring shout will often move in a type of circle where they don't cross their feet because that would be dancing in a sense. And so they move in this circle often in a, as they are uh, doing what is called a shout, which are often songs and what have you. And these ideas, many people think, come from West and Central Africa. and They have basically been adapted by, you can find similar traditions in the West Indies. You can find similar traditions where there are other people of African descent in the Americas. But 
the ring shout itself is is very particular to the southern United States and those who probably still uh, keep it alive the most people uh, know about it the most where it's been documented are among the Gullah people, the Gullah and Geechee people of of Georgia and the Carolinas and what have you still keep this tradition. And often the shout itself is often spiritual. And so a lot of the songs, a lot of the movements have to do with spirituality. But then there were other songs that, as I tried to show throughout uh, the novel, I pull on other songs that may have been secular, right? And so the shout, while mostly spiritual, could also be secular and could be talking about life and what have you. The, the quotes that I use actually in there are things that I made up, <laughs> but I did fashion them to look like, you keen eye there, I did fashion them to look like what an interviewer for one of these uh, writers' projects during the Great Depression, and much later actually, who were recording these things, I kind of fashioned it and modeled it after them. And I pulled on several of the songs and, you know, basically different interpretations that I've seen uh, those who participate in the shout uh, used to explain some of these songs, as well as some extrapolation on my own to create those uh, those little introductions in there. And you have them there translated by someone who is also a, a minor character in the book as yes. well, which I thought yeah. was interesting. So that was the clue to me that it wasn't that they were right. fictionalized, even yeah. though they were clearly based on this this actual real an amazing artifact, which people can see online. Actually, I've I've yeah. read some of them, and they they're it's mind blowing and wonderful that those stories are preserved and those experiences, those narratives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And the shout itself is that I think probably the people who probably uh, keep the tradition alive most today, at least in the popular mind, uh, there's a group called the uh, Macintosh County Singers from Georgia, and they basically redo the ring shouts, do their own versions of them. And, you know, listening to them and seeing it live in present day was often a, a big help as I was working my way through this novel, right? It, it was always a good soundtrack. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, I have to listen to that. So it's interesting to me that you are a historian and you're also a fiction writer. And so I wonder what it's like to be both a historian, so in other words, <laughs> I suppose, an expert on facts, and then also a fiction writer, which I suppose you could think of as an expert on the non-fact. On the non-facts. <laughs> Alternate facts. Right? Alter, yes. Oh, God. I Yes, I would not call it that because that's a very tainted <laughs> phrase. No, but, but uh, yeah, it was interesting you say that. I mean, you know, it's, it's what's interesting is that my, my speculative fiction writing career and my academic career took off, like, very much at the same time. Right. Uh, I had been writing uh, short stories and getting s some publications, but really it was my first really big publication in tour was a story called The Dead Jin in Cairo. And this story came out the very day I was walking to get my Ph.D. <laughs> and so, wow. yeah, I know. And so call it coincidence or kismet in some way. Right. So it's been interesting because what's happened now is that as I became a junior scholar and assistant professor of history, I also had this burgeoning speculative fiction writing career. And it's it's been something to juggle the two. Um, often, I'll tell you, I mean, to be honest, I often tell people I often sought to keep them separate. I, I write under a pen name. I'm, uh, I'm a professor in one hand and I am the uh, writer on the other. But, you know, that attempt, I think, has proved uh, a bit futile. <laughs> <laughs> because it seems that 
the two worlds end up blending in some ways. And I quite often end up bringing some of my skills as a researcher or some of the histories that I go over. They end up influencing my writing, sometimes whether I'm aware or not, and sometimes blatantly. And so, you know, it, it, is, it is an interesting dynamic, as you said, a person who is supposed to be concerned with facts and the other person who is thinking more creatively and speculatively. And yet at the same time, there are ways that it's not so different. I study the history of, for instance, of enslaved people, slavery and emancipation. And if you go into the archival records, finding the voices of enslaved people uh, is hard. Finding out what they thought is very difficult. Uh, no one was, there weren't a lot of people going around asking them what they thought during that time. And so what you have to do, for instance, if you're trying to understand an enslaved person, you might read a lot of court records or you might try to read what their owners thought. And then you have to speculate and piece together that enslaved person's life. And so while I say that they are distinct in many ways, there are certain ways in the type of history that I study where there are some commonalities. I suppose all writers' books speak to the power of storytelling, but there is in your book an example of a story that, in fact, has had an impact on history, and that story is an ugly one, The Birth of a Nation, or the movie called Birth of a Nation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a main event of the book, that there's going to be a showing of this film, yeah. and the Ku Kluxes want to use it to conjure a super monster. Yes. And in your description of the movie and the role it plays in the book, you talk, or I should say Maurice, who's the narrator, talks about the fact that the film inspired the second, is it called the rebirth? I don't want to say that, use that word. Yeah, the second clan. The second clan, right. In iterations, like 2.0 and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, the clan that arises during that period is called the second clan, as opposed to the first, which is the one, you know, founded during Reconstruction. In my very limited understanding of Birth of a Nation, which people describe as a classic film and a racist film, I thought it was describing the Ku Klux Klan. But then I read that, in fact, some of the imagery from it was what the second clan adopted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so really, it is a case of life imitating art. And then you use it in the story to have it inspire something powerful and evil, a super monster. So I just thought the whole thing was a fascinating choice on your part to use Birth of a Nation. And you've taught a course on slavery and cinema I saw in your biography. Yes, yeah. That's a long way of my just simply asking you to talk about Birth of a Nation sure. as both a historical artifact and the role that it plays in your book. Right. No, I mean, I think you've landed on it uh, wonderfully. So, yeah, I, I teach a course on slavery and cinema, and I actually start the course uh, right around Birth of a Nation, the birth of modern cinema which is also this movie that is a very much a lost cause film that tries to assert uh, that slavery was benevolent, that describes freed black people in brutish ways. And the movie's heroes are the Ku Klux Klan. And so this movie came out in 1915. It was based on two earlier books. And when it comes out, you have people have to realize there, there was nothing like this in film, right? It was still a silent film, but there'd been no silent film like this, nothing this long, nothing with such a score, nothing with the type of 
visual angles and photography and photography that's used, which is why it's still considered, you know, the in many ways, the progenitor of modern filmmaking. And when it hits the screens, it is a phenomenon. People go to see this film and come out energized. They, they are fainting at times in their seats as they're watching these images. There's an incident in Florida where a white man watching these two-dimensional images of he's watching a white man whose face is painted black to pretend he's black chase a young white woman as a predator. And this man in the movie theater pulls out a gun and starts shooting at the screen according to a newspaper article at the time, right? Yeah, so, yeah it's like the early iteration of Pizzagate. <laughs> early, that's a good one, yeah. And but we have to I always tell my students, I say, imagine no one had seen anything like this before, right? Like how we would think of virtual reality or a holodeck or something like that. And this two-dimensional image worked on people's imagination so much they saw it as real. It also helped amplify much of the anti-Black prejudice, which was simply common at the time. And as you point out, the birth of a nation's perhaps most infamous accomplishment is that when it is seen uh, in Georgia, a white Georgian there, Alex Simmons, decides to gather up together some other men um, using the birth of a nation, using ideas from birth of a nation, using the film itself as a recruiting tool. And they meet on Stone Mountain and they form the second clan. And the second Ku Klux Klan is much larger than the first. The first clan was pretty much isolated Confederacy. And by 1915, it had been all but vanquished, right? Uh, the federal government had tried to put an end to it under Grant's administration, but really the first clan kind of disappeared because they'd won. <laughs> they, they got what they wanted. Jim Crow entered the South. It became a fully segregated society. Um, black people were pushed from government. They got what they wanted. But Simmons, after this film, decides to resurrect the second clan. And this clan has new enemies. It hates Catholics. It hates immigrants. It hates Jews. And, and as well, of course, it hates black people, as it always had. But its scope and magnitude just expands, right? So that in a few years, by the 1920s, the second clan uh, is not just confined to the South, but it's all through the Midwest. It's in New England. It's in Maine. It's in Seattle. It has men and women and children as members. I think the numbers may be anywhere from uh, two to four million, right? It's running people for office. It is influencing politics. So the second plan is, is just massive, right? It becomes a hand behind prohibition in some ways. And so um, this is this era I was trying to get at and why I thought it was important to bring them into the story. In the story, you go back to Stone Mountain and they're going to show Birth of a Nation again. Yes. And this time it's to conjure this monster. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, I had to return to Stone Mountain, which is still a point of conflict because it is going to be sometime after all this that people decide that Stone Mountain should be a place for a Confederate monument and that today houses the largest Confederate monuments in the world, right? There are gigantic carvings on Stone Mountain of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson uh, Davis and um, I think Stonewall Jackson. And it's still a place where white supremacists and Klan members still meet, <laughs> right? And, you know, pro-Confederate sympathizers. So this history is still with us in many ways. So it seemed like that was a great place to have this final battle. 
Wow. Just when I think I can't be surprised by anything, I'm surprised, you know, to hear two to four million. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's all in the history books and it's all there to yeah. be seen. But even that Stone Mountain exists with these statues, you know, I, I live in ignorance. Yeah. 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 Literally carved into the landscape. And it's like a Mount Rushmore to um to the Confederacy is what some people have called it. And it just shows you like some of the challenges when we talk about monument removal, because what this is not just a statue. These would like you would literally have to dynamite the face of a mountain. Right. This is or something of the sort. Or maybe you can have an artist go in and retouch it like you do a tattoo. Oh, interesting. Or they could do that thing they do with the coal mines. They blow up the top of a mountain. I mean, which I would normally think is seems like a horrible, it seems horrible. thing to do. But maybe in this case, it would it would be OK. So it's, it's just a, I think Stone Mountain is just like one of these in the second plan. Just a, I suppose it's just a especially in this era of monuments and such things, just this reminder that so much of this stuff emerged not directly after the Civil War, but much later as in many ways symbols to white supremacy, right? Symbols that are, have nothing to do with the Civil War itself directly, but come about uh, much later. I'm wondering, in addition to entertaining your readers, what do you hope readers of today will find in Ring Shout? Oh, I'll say this. Though, though I wrote the story now, Right. Um, the idea for the story had bubbled up since, I don't know, like 2014, 2015. And, you know, you know, the publishing world is slow. <laughs> so right, right. this story was written. I finally, you know, pitched it to my editor in 2019, almost as a side story. It was just like, oh, I have another novel coming out. Would you guys mind a, a small novella? I have a small little story I want to tell. And. I wrote it in 2019, so it was really before the massive tumultuous events of this summer, right? So it, it predates that and when I wrote it. And so it, it's just been, like I said, it's either kismet or coincidence that it comes out right at this moment, right? While all of this is going on. So when I started writing this, when I started coming up with the ideas, we weren't in this moment. However, I can't say that there weren't things acting upon me. I think when I first started writing it, we were undergoing the tumult of Ferguson, for instance, right? This was a few years after uh, Trayvon Martin's murder. And so, so you know, as a writer, you can't ever divorce yourself from the larger atmosphere. And so while I was writing this story that had dealt with the past and these issues of the past, I'd be remiss to say that those modern issues weren't also working on me. And so with all that said, as far as what I want people to take away from it, you know, I, I suppose I am much more interested in seeing what people find within it to meet this moment. Because I have had a lot of people say, like, wow, this book is so timely. I want to know why they think it's timely, right? I want to know what they see within it that speaks to this era of activism and fighting against racism and what have you. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know, that, that doesn't fully answer your question, but it's kind of telling you um, that's what I want to see in many ways, rather than me telling people, uh, this is what I think you should get out of my story. Yeah, most writers don't want to say what, what they want people to get out of their stories. So that Good. makes perfect sense. Yes, exactly. I mean, the story gives so much to this moment, but sadly, I was thinking it could have been written at any point between... 1922 when it's set and now or even before obviously with yeah. tweaking the technology and and because right. the persistence of the the hatred and the 
chaos system and white supremacy is it's still here as we yeah, as it, we all know it endures <laughs> it endures yeah like, exactly spirit of sauron it endures and you know the other part of this if i if there's something that's really interesting as i'm also talking about in here when we talk about maurice and trauma i'm talking about not only the external pressures that are placed upon someone like maurice but what that does what that does to one internally, right? How one internalizes that type of that type of hatred that is they deal with on every day, and that type of trauma, and how it might change them, and how do you hold on to your justified rage and anger without having it destroy you in turn? Yeah, that, that's another part that I'm talking about in there. There's so much in there. I mean, there's the figures that her sword draws upon. It's empowered by by these memories and these voices, but they're not all, if I understood correctly, I mean, they're also going all the way back to Africa, perhaps people who were involved in the slave trade, in selling yes. their brothers and sisters too. So not just those who were enslaved, but those who participated on the other side of the... Yeah, that's very much tied up with that sword. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I tried to complicate the narrative. Gives us interviewers a lot to talk about and readers a lot to think about. So you recalled in a blog post just this past summer uh, that on the day in 2000, when the police officers who killed Amadou Diallo were acquitted, you came up with the idea for a story in which African gods meted out vengeance to cops who were acquitted of a similar crime. And and then you go on and, and you say later in the post, you call on black creatives to, quote, do what you do, create, make some beautiful art with that hurt and anger, make your beautiful, terrifying and bold creations. They can be about this moment or they can give us the escape and reprieve we need because that's important too. Right. And I thought maybe we could wrap up the conversation with you talking about the role of art and what it means to you personally. I mean, in many ways, it's an outlet. I think it's I think it's it's funny that you like I I forgot I wrote that I was doing such a stream of consciousness when I wrote that blog it's pretty long <laughs> I remember it's I good it's good getting a lot of stuff out and um, I was thinking about when Diallo when when Diallo uh, the verdict came down and I remember that anger I felt and I had nowhere else to place it and I remember um, dating myself here. Uh, but Chuck D, a public enemy, right? He had a song and he had a line in there that said, when I get mad, I put it down on a pad, right? Saying that when he would get angry, he would go to write lyrics, right? And some of these lyrics might never make the light of day. They might never become songs, but he needed to write something down. And I think that's not always my impetus for writing, right? Sometimes I write just because I want to write and I want to dream and write something joyful or mediocre or what have you. But when these larger events happen in our world, yeah, I think that for many artists, we have the need, we have this this drive to create, right? Some way to speak about it, some way to get our opinions and thoughts out. And some people may draw, some people may do poetry, some people will do film. And for me, I use the speculative fiction, right? I try to talk about these these real world events at times through the lens of the fantastic and you know and i don't know why that is how i try to do it i don't know why people alert to that um perhaps 
perhaps we've always been as human beings. We, we, we gather around a fire to hear the storyteller tell us the story larger than life because then it'll impart more meaning. I don't know. I wish I could tell you something deep like that. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think that it serves that function for me. And I think that for many people who, many people who are, are, you know, during, I think during the summer, for instance, a lot of people were simply saying that they couldn't write. They just, it was just too much, right? That was going on. They couldn't find their creativity. And that's perfectly understandable, right? Nobody's telling you go out there and create and do all these things. However, when you get a moment, right? Or even in that moment, even if you can't write, take down a pad, jot down some ideas if you have, or just think and sit with this stuff for a while and see if creativity is not a great way to, to vent, to uh, get across a point, or to simply add your voice, right? Don't, don't short thrift your, your creativity in this time. Well, those are wonderful words to, and wonderful thought to conclude on. So thank you. Thank you so, so much for coming on the pod. Thank you for the interview. Yeah, this is great. Well, I have been talking to P. Jelly Clark, the author of Ring Shout, which came out from Tor.com earlier this October. Thanks for listening to this episode of New Books and Science Fiction. Consider leaving a review to show your support. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show, and the founder and editor of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, gets the show on the air with help from co-editor Ann Wilson. And one final word. If you haven't voted yet, what are you waiting for? Mail in your ballot, vote early if your state allows it, or at the very least, go to the polls on election day. All elections are important, but this election is very important. See you on the other side.